0: Well, as we continue on our journey to discover what the gospel says to a variety of issues that most of us are going to face in our lives, we are going to kind of a controversial stop this morning, not the most controversial on this trip, but one of them that has been a source of conflict in the church and between people and a source of judgment between people. And this morning, we want to address modesty. And I think it's, it's been such a source of conflict because it can feel so personal, and it can be very difficult to pin down. It can often feel arbitrary, and it can feel like there's tension because the church has often stood counter to culture in matters of personal modesty. If someone is telling you what you should or should not wear, it can feel very much like they are meddling, like they're judgmental, like they're controlling. And those are some of the labels that sometimes get attached to people when they address modesty. Some ideas and applications of modesty Have really been off target. They've not been done well at all. Embarrassing women as they come into church by measuring hymn lines is one example that I've heard of, and I think that it is an example of an abundance or an overabundance of rules and regulations, often without any instruction of the heart or room for any kind of personal choice, and so it ends up seeming like a legalistic burden rather than something that flows out of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Now, does this mean that modesty shouldn't even be a concern for us? Should we just stop addressing it all What about people who say that there's no specific guidance in the scriptures about modesty, or even an agreed-upon cultural standard? Since the Bible doesn't address hemlines or, ne- or necklines neck or hem lengths or yoga pants or bikinis or, or, or things like that, what, what gives anyone the right to say anything about these things? What gives us the right as Christians to think about these things? But the question regarding modesty really isn't what do we think about garments that were not even invented at the time when the scripture was written, but rather, does the Bible have anything to say regarding a virtue, the virtue of modesty, and, and what do we need to know about that? Remember that when we're on this road trip, we're not just looking for tips and tricks. So this morning, you're not gonna hear measurements from me. You're not gonna hear inches or rules about, about you know, if it's going past your, your fingertips or anything like that. That's not the point that I want to make today because what we wanna ask is, what does the good news... That Jesus was sent by God, died on the cross for our sins, that he was raised from the dead three days later, that God raised him to heaven where he sits at his right hand and he rules and that he's coming back and when he does, we will be resurrected and reign with him. What does that good news teach us about modesty? What does it teach our hearts about modesty? So today we're asking the question, what does the good news say About modesty? What does it have to do with it? And to answer that question, we need to understand a little bit about what modesty is. And in my experience, people primarily think of modesty as relating to women's clothing. But that's far too narrow a definition of modesty. The virtue of modesty is a manner of relating to others through humility and deference and respect. And Bible translations don't often use the term modest, but the idea of modesty or the virtue of modesty is frequently found in the Bible. Listen to how the apostle Paul teaches us to think about ourselves in relation to one another. He says in Romans 12, three, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And again, at Philippians 2, three, Paul teaches us, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Modesty and humility are related in that modesty describes how you present yourself to others with an attitude of humility. It's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not showy, it's about demonstrating respectability. And ultimately, we'll see the gospel of Jesus. It's not just that the clothing of your body, but it's the clothing of your heart that matters. And when you add the gospel to this concern, then it's not just what you clothe your heart with even, but what do you clothe the gospel with? How does your life, your behavior, and your attitudes help to present the gospel as something that is good, that is attractive? Look at Titus 2, 9 to 10 to see what I mean. Paul says this slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them they must not talk back or steal but show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good then they will make the teaching about God our savior attractive in every way now it's not my intention this morning to try to offer a defense for what the Bible says about slavery. I'll just note this. Note that Paul is not condoning slavery. He is rather speaking to people who had gotten saved and they found themselves in a situation which in the first century Roman Empire was very, very common. Slaves had gotten saved and Paul had no authority to tell their masters, you must let your slaves go because a lot of those masters were not Christians. So what could be said to them in the midst of their own circumstance, he told them that they ought to act with respectability, to be trustworthy, to be good, even to people who probably did not deserve to be treated that way. And so, Paul it, Paul's instructions to slaves in those circumstances are instructive to us regarding modesty. He seems to indicate that there are more important things than insistence on personal autonomy, personal liberties. And that's a hard thing for us to accept and it will come up in a little while regarding clothing, behavior, and our responsibilities toward one another. But notice that he tells them not to talk back and steal and to show themselves trustworthy and good even when the people who were over them may not deserve that. Why does he tell them this? Not because slavery is good, Paul doesn't say that. He says, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. Other translations put it this way, that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The words attractive and adorn are translations of a Greek word that you'll probably recognize. It's from the Greek word kosmeto. We get the word cosmetics from this, or what you decorate your face with. It meant to order something rightly or to decorate something, and so we get the word, the English word cosmetics from it. And we're so often concerned with what people think about us and how they perceive us and our appearance that the idea of giving up personal liberties or dressing or acting in a way that the culture considers less than attractive or refusing to live by cultural sentiments or cliches like you be you or be true to yourself or feel what or do what feels good those those kinds of restrictions could strike us as puritanical sometimes as prudish but the Bible tells us that we should be more concerned with the gospel's appearance than with our own external appearance, and that we are trying to make the gospel attractive to people. Not that we try to make it seem like something that it's not, but that in our lives we rightly present the joy and the peace and the life that the gospel actually provides. We are highlighting God's salvation to people. And this brings us to the main idea of the message, which is that you should dress to impress with the gospel. You should dress to impress with the gospel. This is the foundation of Christian modesty. Modesty is not about legalism. It's not about arbitrary rules. That's not an excuse for us not to think about modesty or or appropriate boundaries or things of that nature. It's not an excuse not to listen to those who may be older or wiser on these things than ourselves, but it is to point out that modesty starts somewhere deeper than your clothing If you want to dress to impress with the gospel, you can start by clothing your heart. This is the first thing that needs to be clothed. Because if you're dressed modestly on the outside, but your heart is immodest, it's not going to last very long. That thin veneer you wear over your skin will only last a little while before your heart exposes itself for the immodesty that is there. And while our virtue, or the virtue of modesty, entails a desire to respect and help others, it starts really. In the inner person, lists of rules can lead to frustration when they aren't driven by a desire to please the Lord and be like him. And so modesty starts with a sincere desire to please God and to honor Jesus more than to please others. We see a stunning example of this in maybe a place where we don't often think about modesty, but we see an example of this with John the Baptist. Listen to how these passages describe him. Matthew 3, 4-6 says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John 1, 19-23 says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan, that is Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus, he's the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, Jesus, must increase. I, John, must decrease. So here is a man who is so devoted to God's purposes for his life that he dressed in coarse camel's hair and a simple leather belt, and he ate bugs and wild honey. This is sort of like the picture they show in the Bible, when it says, when, or in the Bible, in the dictionary when you look at modesty. This is a modest life. This is simple. It is unpresumptuous. It is not showy or flashy or greedy. It is modest, and yet maybe maybe you've seen this trend how many of you have seen the trend of of tiny homes anybody noticed that so it's these people who you know they're going to they're going to build this little modest home but then something happened and it became a fad and now they show it on tv which really isn't a very modest medium. And it's like all over Instagram, which really isn't a very modest medium either. And so it started as simple, modest, and now it's like, oh, this is cool. Everybody should be doing this. And that's kind of what happens with John, right? He starts with camel's hair and a leather belt, and then, maybe somewhat surprising to him, because he's just preaching repent, Crowds start following him. How's he going to react to this? Not only that, bigwigs from Jerusalem, political bigwigs and religious bigwigs, start sending people, asking him questions as significant as, are you the Savior? I mean, here's a guy with camel's hair and a leather belt, and they're asking him, are you the one God's sending to save our nation? Think of how easy it would have been for John to just get a little bit of a big head at that moment. Think of how flattering that must have felt for a guy who was living in the desert eating bugs to suddenly being asked, are you the Messiah? And yet when they come and they ask these questions, what does John do? He doesn't take credit for himself. He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the desert. Prepare the way for someone else for the Lord. He says, I'm not the bridegroom, I'm just, I'm just the, the best man, and I'm helping get things ready for when the groom shows up so that his bride will be ready to be received by him. He says, I must decrease and he must increase. John clothed his heart with modesty. It wasn't something that he just wore on the outside with camel's hair, his modesty began with knowing who he was and the person that he was called to exalt, Jesus. So when people came with flattering suggestions, he could reply, I can only receive what God has given me. And Of course, this kind of modesty, it only makes sense if you see that Jesus is worth honoring. I mean, how could John deflect that kind of flattery if he didn't actually think the person that he was announcing was worth announcing? How could he have said, he must increase and I must decrease? What allows a person whose pride usually wells up, whose immodesty usually wants to assert itself and say, look at me? Because that's usually what happens when people point out, hey, this guy's getting more of a following. That person got more attention. More people went to that class or that barbecue or that party or that person's graduation than came to yours. Usually when we get that kind of news, something inside of us wants to kind of stand up. But John somehow is able to say, that's okay, I must decrease, because the very reason I'm here is that he may increase. The only reason he could do that is because he actually believed Jesus was worth exalting. And the only way you'll ever be modest, truly modest, the Christian virtue of modesty, is if you actually believe Jesus is worth worshiping. If you actually think, It would be better for people to give their attention to Jesus than to give their attention to you. That's Christian modesty. If you don't, if you don't believe that modesty will just be a list of unreasonable rules that interfere with your life, but if you see the worth of Christ, then you'll know that your worth comes from him. If we could put up that that slide that has all the, the things that we have in Christ The Bible tells us that this is who we are in Jesus. All all these things are what come from being in him. It says that you'll know the promises of God are fulfilled in him, that in him you are the righteousness of God, that you were chosen in him, that you've been redeemed in him, that In him, all things will be united together. That you have an eternal inheritance in him. That you were sealed with the Spirit in him. That you're built up with other saints in him. That you have confident access to the Father in him. That all things are held together in him. That you are filled in him. That you have victory over the enemy in him. That you have eternal life in him. And get this, that you are glorified in him. And that last one is important. Because it can help us to sum things up about what being in him means for, for modesty. Immodesty is illegitimately drawing attention to yourself. And so Christian modesty means that you draw attention to Jesus because he is so good. But he is so good that he shares his glory, his righteousness, his beauty, his wisdom, his justice, his joy, his peace. He shares it with you. There seem to be three main manners of immodesty or drawing attention to yourself. Wealth, power, and sexuality. When you are clothed in Christ, you don't have to try to gain attention through your wealth, through your power, or through your sexuality. You have what you need in Jesus, and so you can glorify him and and graciously receive the glory he shares with you. And so the question we want to ask ourselves is this, is my heart clothed? in him. Like John the Baptist, are you able to see that life is not about drawing attention to yourself, but about drawing attention to him? Do you see that it's more than about what you say with your lips, but what you say with your life in every way? Christian modesty is the virtue of making much of Jesus, knowing that he's already made much of you when he died on the cross, so you don't have to try to make much of you anything that gets in the way of making much of Jesus we could call immodesty. Now if Christ is the goal of modesty then we can legitimately say that your clothes aid your goals. Now I'm using clothes in both the figurative and the literal sense both to describe your attire and and the attitudes and behavior of your life. So let's read the most commonly cited passage that that gets brought up in discussions of modesty. It comes from 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 10. It says this, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And Paul was addressing modesty to specifically women in this passage, but I want you to notice two things about it. First, the problem wasn't Women's hemlines, it wasn't their necklines. It was that they were coming in a way that was flashy and was a, a, a presentation of their class or their wealth. They were being arrogant in dress. They could be too concerned with demonstrating their status by how they dressed and so Paul warned them against that. Second, notice the antidote. The antidote was being respectable modest, and self-controlled. And while this is the only time in the, in the New Testament the word that was translated modest occurs here, respectable and self-controlled are virtues that Paul not only commands for women, but he also commands them for men. In fact, in the very next chapter, 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, he applies these two virtues, self-controlled and respectable, to men in the church who are going to be leaders. And that said, We're not in the world, and so we're not going to pretend this morning that everything that relates to men and women is the same, that there are no difference or distinction between the two, because we know that there are. The Bible teaches us such, and we can tell as much using our brains and our minds that have been redeemed by the Holy Spirit. It was apparently, though, at the time, a greater temptation for women to show off their status by how they appeared, and that may still be true today in some contexts, though men also tend to portray wealth by what they wear or their possessions. But if you put wealth or power forward through your appearance, what do you suppose people assume about your values? If in how you dress or in the things that you possess and you kinda put in front of people's eyes, if you're showing wealth, if you're being flashy, what do you think people will assume is your priority or your highest value? Likely they'll assume money, they may be right. And so when we dress or we act in certain ways, we demonstrate values that we hold and Paul is warning against it. But this begs the question, Should Christians not only be concerned with a demonstration of greed or pride or wealth, but should we be concerned with sexual modesty, which is often what people mean when they use the word modesty? And the answer is clearly yes. Modesty does relate to our sexuality. And in 1 Timothy, Paul focused on modesty regarding wealth probably because that was the greatest potential for jealousy and pride in that particular situation and that the difference of social status was, was being flaunted to others. But is it the case that there is a potential for revealing clothing to have a similar effect of causing envy and communicating something that doesn't actually align with your goals as a Christian woman to glorify Christ? the answer is clearly yes. And while the scriptures don't give specific rules about clothing, we do see that they recognize that clothing can communicate things about our intentions and character. For instance, Proverbs 7, 10 to 27, describes how an adulteress dressed up like a prostitute in order to try and tempt a man. In other words, she understood clothing communicates a message and makes me look a certain way. Hosea 2.13 and Ezekiel 23.40 both use sensual clothing and jewelry as imagery to describe how Israel metaphorically dressed herself up in order to commit idolatry with other gods and other nations trying to tempt people from foreign lands to come and participate with her. In other words, God's word recognizes that clothing can be sensual or immodest in nature. So intentionally dressing sexy is not something Christian men or women should be aiming for. When we do, we're communicating that our goal is to get the attention of someone physically rather than to point people to Christ. Now, This doesn't mean that you have to dress in a fashion that's unattractive. It means that you want to consider how your clothing causes others to think about you and about Jesus. Now, maybe you've bought into the lie that's masqueraded in evangelical circles in recent years as some kind of Christian liberty that it's not your responsibility to be concerned with what someone else thinks about when they see you. Specifically, maybe you've heard that if a man lusts, that's on him and has nothing to do with what you're wearing. And it's true This idea can be taken way too far. Women should never be made to feel guilty about being women, or they should never be made to feel guilty about sexuality. These are things that are created by God. But we should also consider what the Scripture has to say. If your excuse for dressing sexy is that I'm not responsible for what other people thinks about me, I, I hope I hope you're already convinced that that's just not what the Bible communicates. The Bible communicates that as Christians. We ought to be making the gospel attractive. We are responsible for how people perceive us so that it might glorify Jesus and not glorify ourselves. Lust and sensuality are not on the list of things that bring glory to Christ. Furthermore, while it may be true that in the ultimate sense, you can't make someone sin, you cannot cause someone to sin inasmuch as they are responsible before God. Men, you are responsible before God for your own thoughts. No matter what anybody else is wearing, you're responsible for your thoughts. And I don't think God accepts the excuse, well, I don't think she was modest. I don't think she was clothed. I don't think God accepts that as as some kind of excuse. You're responsible for your lustful thoughts. And the scripture says we should go as far as to tear out our own eyes if we need to in order to honor God in our bodies. But inasmuch as, as men are responsible for their own thoughts and actions before God, we can see this that while you may not ultimately be able to make someone sin or cause them to sin in the ultimate final sense, you can lead someone to virtue. That's a possibility. And modesty strives to lead people to virtue and to glorify Jesus. Megan Hill wrote concerning modesty, this also means we will do everything in our power to promote holiness in the hearts and minds of our fellow believers. We are called to be saints together. We don't want our clothing to be an occasion for jealousy or for lust. It may not be our responsibility if someone sins, but it is our privilege to help prevent it. Now, this doesn't mean that we all ought to go home and start obsessing and worrying about all of our clothing, nor does it give others the liberty to be judgmental about our motives or the specifics about what's worn, but maybe it could cause us to ask, why do I wear what I wear, and what message does it send? Because as a Christian, one of my concerns is, how does what I wear, what I say, what I do, the attitude I bear, How does it affect my brothers and sisters in Christ? Does it aid them in virtue and movement toward Christ-like character, or does it put a hindrance in that? Be aware of your own motives and recognize this. You dress for others in two senses. One, they're the ones who are gonna be looking at you most of the time, and two, let's be honest, when we stand in front of the mirror worried about what we're going to wear, we're usually thinking about what others will think of us, how they will perceive us, what our appearance will be like before them. How will they react to this? But what about men? Well, men should dress modestly as well. But again, we can recognize in our culture that there are differences between men and women, men and women's clothing. Typically, men's clothes and fashions are naturally a bit more baggy and provide a little more coverage. However, men do need to be aware that they don't just dress to show off, whether you know, they're showing off their money or they're showing off their muscles, or whatever it is, but they're dressing in a manner that communicates deference and concern for others. But I think the larger concern for men doesn't have to do with clothing, but with behavior. Often, men kind of get off the hook with modesty because we've made it so much about what a person wears, and we've forgotten that modesty is an attitude of the heart that comes out in our attitudes and behavior as well. And often men are immodest in how they present themselves to women. If we can use kind of the overly cliche caricature of modesty with women having to do with hemlines and necklines, then perhaps with men we could use the caricature uh, of those men whose demeanor toward women includes bravado and constant flirtation. Most women can probably relate to being hit on or having some kind of cat call by men who are machismo or, or they're just creepy, they're just creepy guys and, and that is immodest, that is immodest behavior. It is every bit as immodest and sinful as the clothing that someone might be wearing and the gospel teaches us to act with respect and self-control and when men succumb to base locker room humor about sexuality, when they resort to raiding women's appearance and think that that's some kind of pastime or joke, when they are using pickup lines and they have a generally kind of flirtatious demeanor thinking that they're a real ladies' man, that is what the Bible means when it talks about sensuality and sexual immorality, and it is, by definition, immodesty, just as much as what the clothes someone might be wearing may be immodest. And when it comes to sexual modesty, whether for men or women, and and whether in dress or behavior, I think there's a word that, that we could use, just maybe you could use it in your own thinking about how am I acting in relation to my sisters in Christ? How am I dressing in relation to how others perceive me and perceive Christ? I think the word suggestive is a good word for our behaviors and our clothing. Because we might ask this question, what does my behavior suggest about my intentions to the people around me? What do my clothes suggest are my intentions toward the people around me? What does my manner of speech suggest about my intentions to the women around me or the men around me? Men, you might ask yourselves this because, frankly, I've seen men who are sometimes so unaware of themselves that they act in very uncomfortable ways around women, and they they act inappropriately toward them in a manner that is immodest. They stand too close. They have body angles that are too close. They want to like kiss on the cheek or something. It's weird, and it's immodest in most contexts. And what you want to do is ask, is my behavior and my mannerism suggestive that what I'm interested in is not honoring Jesus, but I'm actually just interested in something physically here that's inappropriate? And so we can use this word, "suggestive" to help us think, what is my mannerism, my dress, my attitude, my actions? Are they suggesting something that actually I shouldn't have as my goal, that actually my heart shouldn't be wanting and longing for. Maybe if you find that they are suggestive, you need to start by examining your heart and say, have I clothed my heart with a desire to make Jesus first? Or am I still under the impression that life is primarily about putting me first? And then from there you can move to say, if my heart is right, then how do I make my appearance and the way that I encounter people, how do I help that suggest to them that my highest value is that they would be free in Jesus like I am. Think about this with me for a moment. Go back to Titus chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, where Paul talks to to slaves. You know, one of the reasons that, that people in Western cultures get so offended when they hear the word slave in the Bible, and it's not just like, slavery bad, slavery bad, which it is. Let me be clear. The Bible leads us in that direction, that slavery is bad. Let me just be clear about that. But one of the reasons that people get so worked up about this, like they think that the, the Bible isn't, isn't, talking about slavery, isn't talking strongly enough about slavery is because they totally misunderstand the hierarchy of values in the Bible. You see, we put certain things at the top of our hierarchy, our list of values. And, and, and in our culture, the highest one is personal autonomy, personal liberty. I get to do what I want, when I want, with who I want, right? That's our highest value most of the time. That's, that's what it is. The Bible, that's not the highest value at all. The highest value was I can have a freedom that supersedes the freedoms that can be offered here on earth. And so Paul could legitimately tell a slave, look, it's not that, you're, it's not that I don't want you to be free. It's that you have a freedom that is so much better that, than your master even realizes that you actually have something to offer to him. He thinks he's in control of you But you actually have something of such eternal value that you are actually in a position of opportunity and power before him because you have the opportunity to offer to him something he doesn't have. He doesn't know that there's an opportunity to be free in Jesus, not for a few moments, but forever. He doesn't yet see that there's a gospel, a good news, that not only can he have what he needs right now, but that there is an eternity in which he can know the freedom and liberty of his sins forgiven and of right relationship with God and of peace with other people. He doesn't know that, so you are in a position to offer to him something that he lacks and he needs more than anything else in the world. And this relates to modesty in this way. There's so often modesty when we think about it. We get our dander up because we think someone's taking away my liberties. Well no, God's giving you the opportunity to give up your liberties. He's giving you the opportunity to say, you know what? Am I free to do things in a certain way? Yeah, I suppose that I could. But what if, by me doing those things, people will miss the fact that there is a liberty in Christ that is so much greater than me flaunting my wealth or my sexuality or my power? What if by doing those things I would actually block them off, prevent them from seeing that there is actually a greater liberty than the one that so many in our culture are seeking? They're seeking liberty by fulfilling their sexuality or by fulfilling their greed or by fulfilling their pride. But what if I could show them the worth of Christ that actually he's more worth it than all? these pursuits. That's what modesty is. It's saying, I want to show people Jesus is worth pursuing more than the things that they're pursuing with their lives. And so when you think about modesty, so many times people get upset. They get defensive. Well, what do you do? Are you judging me? No, no, no. I don't want you to think about, am I judging you? Because that's not the point. And you don't answer to me anyway. You answer ultimately to God. The point is, does my life and how I present myself to others, make the gospel attractive and help them see Jesus. And if what I'm doing with what I'm wearing or my mannerisms, if it would prevent them from seeing Jesus, prevent them from feeling his love and from knowing his liberty, then I'll give up my liberty to act in certain ways, to dress in certain ways in order that they might know the real liberty that comes from salvation in Jesus. That's modesty. It's recognizing where I rank in the order of priorities and that I don't rank at the top. I rank below Jesus. And according to the scripture, I actually rank below you and you rank below me. And we put each other before ourselves in our dress, in our mannerism, in our behavior so that the gospel might be clothed and people would find it extremely attractive so that they'll come to know Jesus as their savior. That's what modesty is. And as you go about your barbecues and your beach trips and your parties and your things this summer, I just want to ask yourself I just want you to ask yourself in prayer with the Holy Spirit, what do my mannerisms and my speech and my dress, what do they suggest to people about the worth of Jesus? Listen, what you wear is never going to by itself win someone to Christ. But it can either aid or it can hinder your witness. Let's act and dress in such a way that we're aiding our witness for Christ and pointing people to Jesus. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? Perhaps you've, you've come this morning, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus at all. Maybe The idea of giving up personal liberties or dressing in a particular way seems like a whole lot of religious nonsense to you. Maybe you came this morning not sure what to expect and and now you you feel like well you're justified in your, your anger against God because they're just talking about rules and regulations again. I hope that this morning you've heard not rules and regulations but you've heard the grace of God through Jesus and that is this that he wants to give you a kind of freedom that you will never ever find on your own. In fact, most of us search for a long, long time in our lives trying to fulfill ourselves. Usually we're searching in in these three lanes we've talked about this morning, in, in wealth, in power, significance, or in sexuality. searching in one of those three lanes to try to figure out how can I be free? How can I be fulfilled? And perhaps you've been searching in one of those lanes. Maybe you know which one. Maybe it it is abundantly clear to you in your life where you've kind of placed your highest value and your priority. Your pursuits reveal it. The way you spend your money pursues it. Your mannerisms reveal it. And maybe you're, you're, you're clear on that this morning what I want to be clear with you about is this, that there is a freedom, a liberty that comes from God, your creator, through his son Jesus, that you will never gain through those pursuits. Even if you consider your pursuits generally good and virtuous, you cannot gain it because God knows your shame. He knows where you've rebelled. He knows where you've gone wrong and you've sinned against him. Not only does he know it, you are walking in that if you're not in a right relationship with him. You're walking in a manner where you've turned away from the Lord and you're rebellious. You're running from him. And that's really the heart of sin. It's not just that you do something wrong once in a while. It's that you're running from God, not interested in his purposes for your life. But today I hope you've heard that there is a freedom that comes from Jesus from your sin. There's a love that comes from God that is deeper than any that you've been seeking in these ways. And there is a forgiveness for your sins and a relationship with God that he offers, not because of what you've done, but because of what he did. He sent his son Jesus. The gospel is that he died for your sin. And because he paid the debt for your sin on the third day, God raised him from the dead, and he's exalted to the, the place of authority and to the right hand of God. And he's returning. And when he returns, he'll judge the world. And the judgment point, the the, the, the line that, that that separates people will be this. Did you place your faith in Christ? And did you follow him? That's it. You can't make it on your own. You must trust Jesus. The Bible says you can begin that in this way. It says if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation doesn't mean that you just raised your hand or that you just prayed a prayer one time. But it can start there. And so if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, I'd like to lead you to begin that relationship this morning. If you've, sit, if you've been chasing things that you know cannot satisfy, if you've been convinced this morning as you've come in by God, by the Holy Spirit, that you need forgiveness and you need freedom, I would love to help to lead you to confess your sin, to believe in Christ, and to be saved. And So if that's you, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, pleading with you this morning that you would not walk out thinking I'll do it another time or I'll I'll get my life right at some other moment that you wouldn't walk out in rebellion against what you sense God tugging on your heart to do right now but that you would right now make a decision to put your faith in Christ and to follow him if that's you you don't have that relationship with him through his son Jesus by faith I'm asking you to do something simple but maybe a little bold would you just stand where you are if that's you you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. You've not confessed your sin, believed in him for salvation. Or maybe you you did that. You went through the motions, but you know that you're not walking with Christ. You're not living for him, and you want to give your life to him today, rededicating your life to him. If that's you, would you just stand where you are? Is there anybody like that? I'm going to wait for just a moment. Anybody like that? If you're watching online and you would like to respond, you can just text the word HOPE to 413 6061 and We'll we'll send a text to you and help you to understand how do I move forward in relationship with Jesus. I'm gonna pray just in case there are those who have responded online. And if you're responding right now, would you just pray this prayer with me? Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you so much for the grace you've given me. I thank you that you sent your son to die for my sin. I thank you that he took my punishment and he took my shame. And I thank you that it's gone, it's done, because he died for me. I thank you that you raised him from the dead and that you give new life and freedom in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, you teach me to walk in new life and freedom in him. I ask, Lord, that you would help me from this day forward to make Jesus the highest value and priority. And when I fail, I thank you for your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to trust you, to lead my life according to your purposes. I believe in Jesus, and I call out to you today for your grace. It's in his name I pray and believe. Amen. Amen. Church, I encourage you, be men and women of modesty. Not about rules and regulations, but about a heart that desires more than anything to make the gospel attractive to the people around us so they can see the true benefit and value of who Jesus is and the freedom that only he can bring. Would you stand with me? And we're just going to close in a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much. We thank you for the grace we have in Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have in him, and we thank you for the freedom that only comes through Jesus. We pray that you would help us in our actions, our mannerisms, our behaviors, in our treatment of others, and, Lord, in how we dress. Lord, that in all of these ways we would be modest, that we would be presenting people an image of Christ, that we'd be presenting them something that doesn't get in the way of what they think about the gospel, but that we would be showing them that there is a freedom that comes through Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would give us strength. And Lord, we ask that you give us insight. Lord, that we would not walk in ways that are suggestive of our our own desires and pursuits, but we would walk in ways that are suggestive of pursuing you and loving you with all that we are. We love you, Lord. We pray for your help. We pray for your grace. And we thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus as your children. It's in his name we pray we believe. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. We are having baptisms after our third service. And so if you do want to stay for those testimonies and that baptism service, it'll be taking place immediately following our next service. We were welcome you to do that. Otherwise, have a great week. We'll see you again on Wednesday for prayer meeting. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.